You are listening to First Church Charlotte. Amen. God bless you all as you're seated. I'd like to welcome all of you joining us online right now from wherever you are watching today. Uh, we want you to feel like you're a part of the service. In fact, First Church, let's give everybody joining us online right now a hand. We want you to have good church right where you are. We appreciate you and we love you. And today we're starting back first steps, first lesson of first steps. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to get to know us a little bit, it's the perfect place uh, to do it. It's immediately after the service, right next door. We feed you, we take care of your kids. What's not to like? I pretty much want to stay there all week. Anyway, moving along. My title today is Love Me Like an Earthquake, which is a great title. Uh, should be made into a song, I'm sure. And uh, maybe you could uh, write something like that and uh, maybe get the praise team to sing it. Probably not, but you should give it a shot. Uh, enjoyed everything, brother, uh, all the inside inf info on Pastor Don. Uh, he, uh, I always wonder how he came to Christ, but now I know it was at a party. They pulled a gun. They shot at him multiple times. He fell to his knees. He started screaming, God, if you'll get me out of here, I'll serve you forever. I'll be good. I'll marry Venice. And that is how uh, he got into the church. Now, some of you guys are at parties with guns. Don't die then, violence. Follow Pastor Don. Give your heart to God. And can the church say amen? amen? All right. Love me like an earthquake. I'm reading Isaiah 54, verse number 10. Uh, For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed. If you took those two phrases and read them in various translations, you would find over and over, translation after translation, you would hear authors describing earthquakes. Different ones would say it a little different in their translation, but they're talking about that moment when the whole earth begins to tremble, the whole earth begins to shake. Though the mountains depart, uh, the hills be removed, the Lord says, my loving kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has mercy on you. Don't you love it when the Bible gives you profound insight, promise of God, and you're able to hold that into the, in the difficulties of your life? God is not given up on you. Wherever you are today, I want you to know that God is not giving up on you. Whatever kind of a week you've had, I, some of you I spoke to this morning and you were just all immediately up and excited, had a solid week, and some of you looked like you had had a bit of a rough day and a rough week, but you're here in the house of the Lord. I believe God's going to meet you here. I believe God's going to bless you. If you're watching this and you had a rough week, I want you to know God is going to meet with you right where you are. He's not giving up on us, and can the church say Amen. We all of us are motivated uh, primarily by love. Life doesn't feel that way. Uh, a lot of times we uh, spend many of our years and maybe even decades primarily pursuing status or pursuing an ideal that we have elevated in our mind, thinking that if we had that, then we would be happy. I have talked to a lot of people who believe if they had a spouse, then they would be happy. If they had a boyfriend or a girlfriend, then they would be happy, as though you can take two unhappy people and put them together and you have a happy couple. I uh, want to disabuse you of that falsehood here today. You cannot put two unhappy people together and make a happy couple. I wish it worked that way. Unfortunately, that has not been my experience. The best thing you can do is to pursue who God said you can be, pursue the person that God has empowered you to become, and uh, pursue your best life now. And out of that, you may join with someone else. But if you're thinking they're going to fix you, I want you to know that you are somewhat more broken than you realize. <laughs> and you're going to need more than a boyfriend or a girlfriend to fix you. Uh, but that said, we all of us are motivated by love, whether it's relationship love, whether it's uh, love of family, love of children, love of parents. Uh, love is probably the most profound human experience that we celebrate collectively. 
Um, if you if you grew up in the 80s like I did, uh, you heard a lot of music about love. I don't know if they sing as much about love. Uh, when I was growing up, men loved women. Nowadays, it seems like they don't love them as much as they used to if you listen to the music. But when we were growing up, we loved women, and now they uh, refer to them whatever they do. But I love you, all the women here. God bless you. I love you. I got the best of you. But if she ever dumps me, you never know. I mean, <laughs> that's funny. I don't care what y'all say. Y'all's the one who started the hot seat. I just played along. So <laughs> uh, the whole of the 80s, uh, particularly, that's when I was coming of age. And that there's no music you will ever love more than the music that was playing when you were coming of age. Let me give you some of the songs that was on the radio when I was uh, coming of age. Uh, 1980, Queen sang a little, a crazy little thing called love. Diana Ross and Lionel Richie followed with endless love. Ario Speedwagon promised to keep on loving you. Some of you suckers can sing every one of these songs. Jesus, take the wheel. <laughs> Joan Jett announced, I love rock and roll, and it was true, she actually did, and uh, Tina Turner sang, what's love got to do with it? Actually, love has everything to do with it. Quit fooling yourselves. Stevie Wonder had a crazy idea that has been tried generation after generation, and he sang a song called Part-Time Lover. Part-Time Lover doesn't work. It works until you get caught, and then you... <laughs> And then you are full-time single. If uh, <laughs> Huey Lewis and the News sang uh, the power of love. Dun, dun, anyway, you know what I liked. Um, uh, there's probably a half a dozen other songs I won't mention. But the song that is most played from that era, the number one most played song from that era about love is... Uh, the song that was number one in the U.S. for a long time, number one in Britain, according to Billboard magazine, and that is this. I want to know what love is. I want to know. Anyways, don't get me started. Uh, I, I, I can't sing because my agent will try to make me bill you, and the praise team will try to put me in, and you know, and so uh, how do you keep track of the Nathans? Well, one of them can sing, and the other one tries to sing. So that's all you need to know about that. Uh, we are motivated by love. Our music is about love. Our movies is about love. Uh, even if it's a tough guy move uh, story, uh, a lot of times you'll notice even in a tough guy story, the reason why he's so angry is because they killed what he loved. Do you see, even our tough guy movies where guys, you know, are acting like they're hard, you know, I used to think that I was a hard guy until I did chemotherapy, and now I don't buy anybody's pretense at toughness. Life is tougher than you are. You just do your best and then cry in your bathroom. But uh, even the tough guy movies, a lot of times the reason why is because you killed what they loved. Uh, our comedies are about the funny ways that love goes wrong and love goes right. Um, our music is about the anger that comes when you don't love me and I love you. You see, you see what I'm doing here? Uh, this goes on and on and on and on, and uh, we are primarily foundationally uh, thematically motivated by, by love. And so as a preacher, I want very much to communicate to every audience that I am able to speak to. I want to get, I want to be sure that people understand that God is uh, a source, the source of love. His motivation in uh, your life is not to control you, but it is to have a relationship of true vulnerability one to another, that you, the creation, might be returned wholly and completely, and not as an act of servanthood, but as an act of love, return to him, and you might walk with him. You might be a part of who he is. All gospel preachers should preach about the love of God. The love of God should be the most common theme that the gospel preacher offers. I know there's lots of law in the Old Testament, but if you take a moment to try to understand that, you will understand that the law ultimately is the defeater of flesh. The role of law is to defeat the flesh and teach you that you cannot do it in yourself. You cannot do it in your flesh. You need grace. Law will always educate 
vindicates you that your righteousness is not righteous enough. And if, if you don't see that, then you will fall into the, the trap of, of, of so many religious people, and they think that God has a bookkeeping kind of love. And if you keep all of the books, then he loves you. And that, that's not the love of God at all. That is a misconception. That's a very human love. Human love is very much a bookkeeping kind of love. And, and you know, now some of you act like it isn't true, and I might buy it with parents and their babies, I mean uh, mothers and their babies, but I promise you, I'm a father. You treat me bad, bad enough, long enough, I'm going to pull a brother Don and I'm going to slap you. You understand what I'm saying? That's a dad thing. Uh, maybe it's a mom thing too, at least when my mom it was, but we won't preach about that since we're only one Sunday away from Mother's Day. Um, but I want you to see that the closest that we get to God's love is that love, the selfless love that a parent may have for, for a child. But the truth is, you treat, you treat most people bad for long enough, and the love is over. Uh, you treat them bad enough, long enough, and they're done. They are, they are done. Now, uh, this is not necessarily in their um, it's, it's, it's not a stamp of approval upon them. We all of us are given the love of God as an ideal that we're trying to be more like that and less like this. We're trying to be more like him and less like me. Uh, we understand that. But uh, God's love is really the most central attribute that the preacher in this hour of grace and hope, in this day of the good news of Jesus Christ, we should preach it and preach it and preach it and preach it. Uh, I know it's in some circles kind of popular to kind of smirk at it as though a preacher who preaches love too much uh, isn't really helping people. And if he really wanted to help people, he should give them some law and some order and some rules and some obligations. And then he would be a real preacher. But I want to say, and I want to be clear, um, I, I am never more of a real preacher than I am when I preach the love of God. The realest I can be as a preacher, the most helpful, the most anointed I can be as a preacher is when I preach the love of God. Because at the core of this gospel is this truth that God loved you so much. He decided to get involved in the mess that you had made. He loved you so much. He decided to look beyond your hang-ups and look beyond your sin. Yes, while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. He loved you so much. He said, if I leave you in your sin, there's going to be no hope for eternal life for you. So let me live a perfect life for you. Let me live a perfect life in your stead. Let me resist the temptation you couldn't resist. Oh, I'm doing some fine preaching up here today. Let me be true when you were false. Let me be right when you were wrong. This is the love of God. And I want to preach it. I want to celebrate it. I want it to be core to who First Church is. I want it for us. I believe in it. I recently was sitting outside a pet store, and because of the circumstances and meetings and whatnot, I was stuck there between uh, meetings, and I was waiting for my next meeting, and I was watching people come in and out of the uh, pet store, and I was amazed at just how broad is uh, the love for, for pets. Now, I grew up with dogs. I love dogs. Um, but sometimes I am guilty of uh, not maybe being as pet-centered as some of you guys are. That's not right. That's not wrong. It just is. And uh, I caught myself. Now, you guys know I, I don't always try to make myself look good, so I'm about to make myself look bad so you can just, you know, talk bad about me over lunch. You know you needed a subject, and now I'm going to give it to you. Uh, so I'm sitting there and I'm watching these people come in and out and they are just so into their pets. I mean, they are just oogling and ogling and ogling and oogling and ogling and you never saw so much squinching and, and the dog's licking them right on the mouth. And I'm like, have you seen the things your dog licks? Honestly, that's what I'm thinking on the inside. That dog, that, that dog puts his tongue places that I don't know you would put your, your tongue. So, I mean, you know, A, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C in a logical manner, I don't know, anyway, and people are like, oh, but he's so cute, yeah, but anyway, let me stop, and I'm feeling a little superior, I am, because I think to myself, y'all sort of talk bad about me, I think to myself, I'm not sure you guys love your kids as much as you do those pets, I've never seen such in my life, and 
um, uh, you know, I, you're, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, yeah, but have you met my kids? And um, that's funny. Um, so <laughs> uh, I'm feeling a little superior. And in that moment, I had this thought come on me. The Lord may have directed it. I don't know. But I do know I was convicted. Okay, I was convicted in that moment. And, um, and just real quick, it went from that thought of feeling a little superior to that thought of aha, to that thought that I need to learn from that. And, it, and the thought was basically this. Um, it was as though I was nudged in my spirit and I was reminded that people love their pets like crazy because for a lot of people, that's the only source of love they have in their life. Uh, they live alone. Uh, their family relationships are not what it should be. Uh, they have had, they've had relationships. They've had marriages. They've had parents. They've had siblings. And all of those were complicated. And they came with demands and obligations and judgment and dismissiveness and uh, all of these things. But this, this little dog, this little whatever pet, bird, snake, whatever you enjoy loving on, you can love on your own snakes just so you know, um, uh, they... This is a source of love in their life. And what I realized, as soon as that came to my mind, it was as though the Spirit nudged me and said, if the church is not a source of love in people's life, then they will never, never love the church. And so I want to say as part of first church culture, we want to be a church that is a source of love in people's lives. We want them to know we're on their team. We want them to know we believe in them. We don't just believe in you when you've had a good week. We believe in you when you barely made it to the house of God. In fact, some of you should have been here, but you talked yourself out of it because you haven't been doing very good lately. Yes, I'm talking to you. Don't turn around and look over your shoulder. I'm talking to you. You know who you are. <laughs> and you think, maybe I, you know, I'm not doing so good. Maybe I should. I want you to know this church loves you. When you're doing good, when you're not doing good, we love you. And we want you to feel like you belong here. None of us are perfect either. All of us are reaching to do better. You belong here. Can I have a big first church house? Amen. And so when we talk about the love of God, it's very natural, particularly us preachers, and we want to communicate it. We want to, we want to share it with you. And so often we make the love of God beautiful, as we should, because it is perhaps uh, the most beautiful thing, I think, that is shown in the story of divinity, the story of humanity's desire to know God, the approach of the human heart to that which is uh, ineffable. You, you can't know it. You can't name it. That which is beyond, and we seek it uh, in that of all of the story of humanity's reach and the most beautiful story is God loving us enough to take our sins pay our debts, die our death, and in exchange give us eternal life. And so uh, we want to convey it. We want to make it beautiful. Uh, and so we often teach very clear, helpful Bible studies. For example, I'm going to do that right now. I'm going to give you a very helpful, a very clear, um, a very appropriate Bible study on the love of God. The first lesson I would like you to take away is uh, your love should first be uh, unto the Lord. Uh, if you have enough love to give to the Lord out of the overflow is then love perfected to the rest of, of that which you have in your life. But if you don't love God first, you will always struggle to love the rest of your obligations right. You make your love right. You make it, you hallow it by loving God first. You love him with all your heart, mind, soul, all of your strength, everything that is within you. This is the first and the greatest commandment, Matthew 22, verses 37 and 38. And you choose it. You offer it Godward. John, in his uh, first epistle, establishes this, chapter 4, verse 16. We know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in his love. What are you trusting in? I hope it's not your goodness. I hope your trust should be in God's love. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows 
more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment. Uh, if you're struggling with wondering whether or not you're saved, uh, if you're struggling with, wonder, with wondering whether or not uh, you're going to make heaven your home, it's probably because you are struggling uh, to uh, have victory in love. Your love is toward God, and it overflows to everything else in your life. I promise you, there is nothing more reassuring to your heart than to pour your heart out to God in love, and then take that same love and pour it out to others in your life. That will stop the fear of whether or not you are, you are saved. We can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Such love has no fear. Perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows us that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. We love each other because God first loved us. This leads us to the next necessary step of love. First, our love is poured out to God. This is a, a love built upon faith. No man has seen God, but we see him as a representation of all that is good, all that is beautiful. We see him as creator. We see him as the source of all goodness in our life. And through faith, we pour our love out to him. If we can do that, love then becomes visible in our life. How is love visible in our life? Our love toward God is not visible. It is faith. It is devotion. It is in your heart towards God. It is your prayer closet. It's the song you sing on your way to work. It is an act of devotion, faith, and ultimately relationship. Yes, love, but it's not visible. How do you make this vertical love visible? If you have this vertical love in your life, it is made visible to your love to other people. They don't have to look like you. They don't have to be from your socio group. They don't have to have your ethnic background. They don't have to vote like you. They don't have to like your music. They don't, don't even have to agree with you on everything. You are able to love them. Why? You are so overwhelmed with the love you have for God, that your love flows out of you and able and is able to make a difference in the world that God has placed you in. This is apostolic love. First poured out to God and then overflow to the world that you are in. Now, if people cannot see your love to the world you're in, you may be lying to yourself about your love for God. What you really may be in love with is something else. Something else is reassuring you. It's not the love of God that's reassuring you. It may be something else that's reassuring you. It may be something that you inherited in religious tradition. It may be something that you have chosen as conviction that you've elevated to idol. And that is what reassures you. No, I want to be biblical. Somebody say, I want to be biblical. This is what I want to do. I want to pour out my love to God, and that becomes visible by overflowing me, and I am now able to love other people. So first it's Godward. Then it is otherward. It is toward others, not a self-centered love. Back to Matthew chapter 22, verse number 39. The second is equally important to the first. What was the first? To love God. Pour out your love first to God. The second, equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. He does not use the word brother. This is what the religious crowd wanted him to do. Love your brother as yourself because then you can control who you love. But that's not the word he uses. He uses the word neighbor because you don't get to control who's in your neighborhood. You still ought to love them. We want to love our brothers. We want to love our sisters. And yes, we should because that too is a testimony of God. But the language used here is much broader than brother because what the Jew wants to do, uh, the religious Jew, is he wants to honor religious Jews, uh, but he doesn't want to be contaminated by the Samaritan. And so Jesus says, let me mess with your theology and tell you a story about the good Samaritan. The Jew wants to say it doesn't matter if he's good or not. He's not of us. He's not our people. He's not our tribe. Therefore, he is other. And the Lord says you need to love him as a sign of divine love. Now, I'm doing a, a good job of giving you, thank you very much, that's how you compliment yourself, a good job of giving you a typical, conventional, expected 
Bible study instruction message slash sermon on love. Let's continue. Number three, love must be intentional. It cannot be feeling-based. You can't wait until the third time you've sung Kumbaya and then do something nice to somebody. You are called to do something nice to somebody because God has done such good things to you that the least you can do is be nice to somebody. It is a choice you make. John 14 verse number 24. Anyone who does, doesn't love me will not obey me. It is a choice. And your obedience to God must be built upon love because law doesn't work. You cannot force. Slavery may bring obedience, but it will never bring love. And remember, my words are not my own, Jesus says. What I am telling you is from the Father who sent me. In other words, this is a principle of deity, a principle of divinity. Jesus is saying, 1 John 3, verse number 17, if anyone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Now, let me be honest. I'm not excited about reading that either. What I want to do, just like you, is talk about how much I love God. I want to sing about how much I love God, but I don't want to be troubled with showing my love. Man, it's quiet now. I'm doing extra good. Give myself a raise. I want you to see how this scripture challenges all of us. It challenges you. It challenges me. Don't talk about how much you love God. Let your love be seen as it is poured out to other people. And number four, we'll stop with four points, but there's more that could be made. Love must be comprehensive. It must not just be a Sunday kind of love. If you're like me, uh, if you get frustrated in your job, you can come to church. Uh, I don't get so much this way anymore, but when I was working construction, Lord, help me. Um, uh, you get on a job and people, they want you to do, and they don't want to pay in you. They, they, they want you to finish what you would say you would do, but then they don't want to do what they say they would do. And I'd just, and I'd come to church and be like, praise the Lord. God loves you. And on Monday on the job, I'd be like, love has to be comprehensive. It doesn't mean you set yourself up to be taken advantage of, but it means you manage yourself in a certain style. And I had to pray about that. And so I came up for me, working in a tough industry, a way to go about it. And for me, it was some version of this. You'll have to figure this out for you. I would hire people, and I would say, look, you see this tone of voice I'm hiring you in? If I ever have to fire you, I'm going to fire you in the same tone of voice. I'm not going to curse you, your cousin, your mama, or your uncle. I'm just going to tell you to get your stuff and get off my job site. Is that okay? Uh, it's not going to be personal. I'm just going to, this is how I'm going to fire you, just like this. I'm not going to yell, run, and scream. So don't think because I'm not yelling, running, and screaming, I will not fire you. And they found out that I would fire them with a smile. Not quite a smile, but a grimace. I want you to see you have to wrestle with this. How are we people that shows forth the love of God and yet still be good stewards and still do good jobs and still do good work? We wrestle with this. Why? Because we have a debt to God. He's been so good to us. He has so shed himself in abroad. Um, he has so beautifully manifest grace to us that the least we can do is try to let that love shine through us. Paul talks about comprehensive love in chapter number 13 of, of 1 Corinthians. If I could speak with the tongues of all earth and of all angels but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, everybody loves prophecy. If I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, everybody loves a word of wisdom. And if I had all such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. This is the comprehensive necessity of God's love. As a church, we want you to to feel the love of God, not just as a principle of preaching, but as a church communion, a church gathering, a church uni unity. We want you to feel it. We want you to see how great God's love is for you. And as speakers and preachers and commu communicators, songwriters, musicians, singers, we make that love beautiful 
as beautiful as we can because from our perspective, it's the most beautiful story ever told. But I want to show you something in the Scripture that's different than just a pretty story of love. I want to show you of how love is so powerful that if you pour it into the ugliest story imaginable, it is not made ugly by ugliness. But what love does is make beauty out of ugly things. Let me say that one more time. We try to make the love of God beautiful, whether it's song or sermon. We try to. We feel like we glorify and honor God when we do so, and rightly so. But God's love is so powerful, uh, it can be poured into an ugly situation. And ugliness does not overpower the beauty of God's love, but rather God's love overpowers the ugliness of the situation. And this is shown to you in the Scripture uh, by a uh, a story that is uh, ugly, and it is the story told in the book of Hosea. Hosea is a prophet to Israel, and Hosea is uh, called of the Lord to represent the call of revival to people who have lost their way in idolatry, and they have turned to all the other gods of the lands, and uh, they no longer think of Yahweh as the source of all their needs, but now they have this competition of gods going. This is the ethical result of polytheism, and if they, they want their crops to be blessed, they'll try to find the, the god or goddess that would bless crops, and they go to uh, it, him or her, and they ask for that blessing, and if they want success in battle or war, they go to the god that represents that, and they ask uh, him, her, or it for blessing in that context, rather than believing they're complete in uh, Yahweh, rather than believing that God is enough for them. And the Lord calls this, through the prophet, uh, a spiritual prostitution. I, did, I told you it wasn't a pretty story. It's a spiritual prostitution, and it is a, a betraying of their own value in the pursuit of something they thought would give them value, but all it really did was debase the value they already had. And this is the story of sin in our life. We pursue sin because we think it'll be fun. We think it'll be our best life. We think it'll make our life better, so we pursue it. And we uh, somehow miss the reality that rather than gaining value through sin, we debase what value we have by trading our souls for that which was never of any value. This is the path of the idolater, and this is what they're doing, and it breaks God's heart. And the prophet comes, and he says, stop. Stop this, this, this way of, of, of spiritual prostitution and turn your heart back to God. And The truth is Yahweh is uh, more difficult uh, to serve, to know, and to love than, <clears throat> than the idols. Why is that? Well, first of all, Yahweh will not give you an image uh, to look upon and sum him up and all these other idols, they, they, they have these images to make it simple. Uh, it's this little image, whether it's ivory, whether it's wood, whether it's silver, whether it's gold, they carve this little image and they make God simple. They make of God a symbol and they, they exalt that symbol and Yahweh will not let you do that. He will not give you any symbol but one and that is the symbol of his image upon you. The only image God will give his people is the image he has placed upon you, always making you to go look in the mirror to see the image of God on you and challenging you to live worthy of the stamp of deity that has been placed upon you. This is an image of conscience and the work of conscience, and that is why you have a difficult time lying to yourself about what you've done. You have a difficult time uh, explaining it away, and there's always that voice because the image that God has given you is the stamp of his own being and essence upon your visage and upon your soul and you are left to wrestle with what does it mean to be stamped and marked by God and so you live a life of either worship of self or a life of worship of God. Why? Because you either worship the image of God, self, or you worship God. Turn away from self and exalt him as the one who created you. Do you see how the depths of understanding and scripture are all threaded in this together? And so the idolater tries to make 
it easy, make it simple. If I had a dollar for every time I've had someone ask me to try to make it simple for them on what they should do, and I won't tell them what they should do, I tell them they should wrestle with it. They should ask themselves what God would have them to do. I do not have the job of making your pursuit of God easy. I have the job of making your pursuit of God authentic. And I know it would be easier if I would just give you a little back of the envelope calculation where you didn't have to think, and he didn't have to agonize, he didn't have to read, but the truth is, there are some things that aren't okay for you to do and might be okay for someone else to do. That's not my opinion, uh, that's the New Testament. You should read it sometime uh, with an open heart. It is true that the Lord will draw and lead and convict, and serving him, pursuing him is not enough to carve a little image and say, that's the image of God. No, the image of God is stamped in your heart, and you have to seek him and desire him and long for him and pray for him. I know my friends watch that movie, but I don't know if I should watch that movie. It seems to have a particular pull on me. Other people go to that place that has all that partying going on, and I know they do, and I'm not judging them. I'm not serving them. I'm not worried about them. God saved me from being a calculator of other people's righteousness. I need to calculate my own righteousness. I don't know if maybe I should go there. Why? I want to know him. I am pursuing him. I am hungry. The only image I've been given is the conscience of God stamped upon me it's a lot easier to have an idol then you just can dumb God down and you can bow down before this little creation and that's enough you get to reassure yourself in your dark midnight you did everything right and your conscience is a little bit worried about it though because uh, an image of a God is not the same thing as the image of God imprinted upon your soul and uh, not only that there's an ethical easiness to uh, their fake righteousness. There's an ethical easiness to it because you don't have to worry about so much uh, rightness. You have to worry about the appearance of righteousness so you don't have to agonize. And that's the thing about idolatry is... um, uh, monotheism forces the birth of ethics. Why? There's not different deities you can go to to play one against the other. There's only one. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, is one, and him only shall you serve. You don't get to go to this God and say, uh, well, you're okay with uh, violence, so I'm going to serve you. I want to be violent. Uh, or uh, you're okay with immorality, and this week I'm going to serve you. Monotheism cuts all of that out. You don't get to play one against the other. Or in the manner of some religious uh, people will do the ugliest things when they feel most defended or most justified by the truth they seem to be uh, defending. And, and, and this is the story of history. And not just, uh, you know, this is the story of religious history. Some of the ugliest things done when people make God simple enough that they get to express their human nature and their lust of the flesh and call it righteousness. Anyway, not preaching about that. But if you're going to serve God, it's not going to be as easy as making a little uh, idol of wood. But this is what the house of Israel has done. And the Lord is calling them back to real relationship. He's calling them back to the love, the devotion, the consecration of serving God. And so they uh, have literally, spiritually prostituted themselves. And as a living sermon, God tells Hosea to go take a wife of those Uh, from the place of harlots and uh, she probably, if you read the text, there's this images in the text where uh, it's like this is all she has known. This is the life she has lived. She probably grew up in that kind of an environment. It's not uncommon even today uh, for children to grow up in that kind of an environment uh, where they feel like this is the natural place for them and uh, this is formative to them in the same manner that for some of you guys who grew up in church, church is formative to you. This lifestyle is formative for her uh, and uh, the prophet marries her. I told you it was an ugly story, and uh, they have children, and uh, she cannot stay true to the prophet. She keeps going back into that lifestyle. Uh, maybe there's, you know, something fun about the nonstop party. Maybe there's something alluring about the approval of powerful men, and uh, 
there is within some people the desire not just to have lust, but, but to be the, the object of lust. And they pursue that with the same zeal with which other people pursue lust. And uh, there's all these complex limitations and pains of human nature, but the end of the story is this. She cannot stay true, and she keeps going back. And every time she does, it's a shame upon uh, the prophet. It is an embarrassment upon him. And finally, one of her, one of her rejections of him, she leaves, and he says, all right, I'll let, you, I'll let you do what you're going to do. I'll let you go your way, and he does. And she goes deeper and deeper into this lifestyle. She, she may have been an alcoholic. Who knows? Uh, she may have had any number of uh, things uh, that are conducive to that imprisoned lifestyle. And uh, she keeps going back to it, going back to it. And he, he says, okay, this time I'm not going to rescue you. Uh, but uh, he's really just talking tough because um, when he prays about it, God says, I want you to rescue her because this lesson's not really about you. It's about me. And uh, I still love her. And <laughs> so he goes and gets his, he goes and finds her. And now she's fallen further than ever. She is now the property of uh, someone else, and uh, he has to raise money to buy her back from the status of a slave. And when he buys her back, he doesn't treat her like a slave. He elevates her back to her role as his wife, and uh, he loves her, and uh, he begs her, and he pleads with her not to leave, and he, he pleads with her, just simply uh, love him. I'm not asking for much. Just if, if, you'll, if you'll just love me, and uh, if you'll just be true to me, uh, but this safe life is not enough for her. And, uh, he had to be prompted by the Lord, and the Lord prompts him. Chapter 2, verse 33, go show your love to your wife again, though she's loved by another. She's an adulteress, but love her as the Lord loves Israel. And uh, he, he pleads with her, and you can read this text. And uh, it's as though Hosea says to her, look, I've redeemed you. I, I brought you back to myself, and now I, I just want you to be faithful. Can you be faithful? But uh, it's not a pretty story. It's not kind of a dark Cinderella story. It's, 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 it's ugly through and through because she continually struggles to just do the thing that is asked of her and be true to her husband and love him. And uh, the first lesson of Hosea is this. You need to get it or you're going to miss the beauty of God is love that is said in the New Testament. You're going to miss the beauty of this great love with which he has loved us. The first lesson of Hosea is God loves you, period. He doesn't love you when you've been true to him. He loves you full stop, period. He doesn't just love you when you've been good. He loves you when you've been bad. And he's still seeking to bring you home. And he's still seeking to embrace you. And he's not trying to punish you or humiliate you. He's not trying to buy you with the status of a slave and then bring you back into the household with the legal rights of a slave. But he brings you back as his bride, as his, as his uh, lover, and elevates you again and again and again. This is the love of God. It's, it's, it's not a pretty story that they show us this love, but it is even so a perfect example of this truth. God's love is so powerful that you can pour it into the ugliest story. And rather than the story making the love ugly, the love makes the story beautiful. <clears throat> and the Lord says this at the very beginning of Hosea's ministry. He says this to him prophetically, and I love this passage. Verse number seven, yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah, will save them by the Lord their God and will not save them by bow, nor by sword, or battle, or by horses or horsemen. How is God going to save? God is not going to save through power. He's not going to save through might. He's not going to save by showing up with armies. He's going to show up, and he is going to have a love that cannot be defeated. It is an unbreakable love. It is a love that cannot be stopped. This love of God will overcome everything in your life. I can't promise you that your wife or your husband will forgive you. Maybe, maybe not. I can't promise you that the government will forgive you. I'm pretty sure they won't. I'm not, I can't promise you your parents, your siblings will forgive you. I can't even tell you if they love you. It might be a desperate, deformed love, and you might be the one who deformed it. 
But let me tell you about the love of God. The love of God is so powerful that I can pour it into your ugly story. And it will not stop until it's made your story beautiful. The second lesson is this. God's not going to stop seeking you out. The first lesson was God loves you as you actually are, not as you wish you were. That's number one. Here's number two. God's not going to stop seeking you out. You may cry from the pig pen with the prodigal son. You may weep with the children of Israel stuck in your Egyptian bondage, but God is not going to forget you. He's not given up on you. I'm almost done as our musicians come. I want you to see that even in an ugly story, God's love can make it beautiful. As a pastor, I have been exposed to some uh, very, very heartbreaking stories. Uh, Most of them I do not share because it would be inappropriate to do so. But I have been exposed to some absolutely heartbreaking stories. But I have to say this as a witness, as an individual witness. I have never seen a story so ugly that if they would not open their heart, that God would not come into their life and begin to bring beauty to them. He would begin to exchange uh, beauty for the ashes of what they had made of their life. I've seen uh, drug addicts who burnt down every relationship come into the church and God make their story beautiful. I've seen people who went through just mind-boggling tragedy, but they committed themselves to God and God made the story beautiful and a day will come that they'll be rejoined with the people who they lost. I've seen and heard of marriage uh, circumstances and uh, households. I've, I've dealt with parents abusing ch- children. I've dealt with children lying about their parents. Uh, I haven't had to deal as much as some pastors have, and for that I'm thankful. Uh, I'm, I'm not uh, in any way trying to glorify that. I'm just trying to say as a personal witness, I'm trying to say I've never seen a story so ugly where the love of God could not begin to make it beautiful. And if you let the love of God begin to work in your circumstance, it's going to overpower the anger, the hate, the rage. The smallest amount of light will push back any amount of darkness because the darkness is not stronger than the light, but the light is much stronger than the darkness. I love the words of the poet talking about how people flee from God. He says, I fled from God down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him and under running laughter. Up vistaed hopes I sped and shot precipitated down titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed and followed after. So it is. So it is that God is pursuing you. You can't make your story ugly enough, ugly enough to get God to stop pursuing you. And so I entitled this message this. Love me like an earthquake. And it's a fun title, and I enjoy it. What am I trying to say? I read a passage from Isaiah, and what does the Lord say? Though the mountains be torn down, though the hills be broken, my unfailing love, commitment, kindness is going to be steadfast to you. What's unique about an earthquake? What what is it that's unique? Well, here's the main thing. An earthquake doesn't just break the stuff in your life. It breaks the very ground you're standing on. We get our foundations from the ground, right? We build everything upon the ground. And an earthquake is the one thing that even the ground you're standing on can't be depended upon. That's what an earthquake does. So when I say love me like an earthquake, this is what I'm saying. Everything in your life can be broken. 
you can break your career you can break your relationships you can everything can be broken except for one thing you can't break and that is God's love the ground can be broken but you can't break God's love your health can be broken but you can't break God's love your family can be broken but you can't break God's love he loves you like an earthquake would you stand with me all across the house Lord I pray for every individual here in this house I pray that they would feel your nearness upon them I pray that they would know more than anything else that you are committed to walking with them you desire to fellowship you desire to integrate your heart with theirs you would you desire to be threaded through every part of their life Lord Jesus not just a Sunday relationship but everyday relationship to know and be known to place our hand in yours to have a relational personal God in our lives Lord Jesus don't let people just brush past the great work you have done for them but let them be moved in their spirit by how great a love with which you have loved them I pray for the person here today, perhaps the person person watching this remotely, and they feel as though because of circumstances in their life, they should probably stay away from church for a while. I pray they would see through that lie of self. I pray they would understand your love is bigger than their flaws. Lord Jesus, I pray they would see through the deception wherewith their enemy, the enemy of their soul, tries to limit their availability to you. I pray they would turn away from that and make themselves vulnerable in your presence. Don't let us leave this house the way we came, oh God. Let us be stirred in our heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to open this front right now. If you have a need in your body, if you're sick, if you need a deliverance, if you have an answer that you desperately need, uh, some of our pastoral team will be down here and they want to anoint you with oil according to the teaching of the New Testament and join their faith with yours and speak the the miracle over you today as a sign, a a testimony of what God can do. Uh, If you're here today and uh, you haven't repented of your sins, I I want you to be comfortable coming with us, uh, stepping out, joining us here at the front, lifting your hands and saying, Lord, I'm recommitting my life to you. Lord, I'm directing my heart to you. Wash me today you haven't been baptized today and took on the name of Jesus that that moment of spiritual adoption where his name is placed upon you we are ready to baptize anyone who desires baptism today in Jesus name right now our worship team is going to lead us deeper into the presence of the Lord church I would like you to intentionally right now lift your heart lift your soul lift your spirit and let your love be poured out to God all across this house we're believing for the miraculous to happen today in Jesus name thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte if this podcast has blessed you please rate it with four or five stars by doing so you will help others find our free podcast and bless them if you're in the Charlotte North Carolina area come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come, worship with us.